You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Letter to the Philippians, where we have reached Philippians chapter 3, and if you're using the uh, church Bible, you'll find the passage on page 1180, 1180. Paul has been speaking to the Philippians about their partnership or fellowship in the gospel, uh, and woven into that, there has been a wonderful note of the joy that he experiences and that they share together, and he is very conscious of the way both of these are uh, open to attack and opposition and indeed destruction. And so, in the first verse of Philippians chapter 3 that we're going to begin to read, he is beginning to warn them about the dangers that uh, they may face. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward 
in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. If you love the letters of the Apostle Paul, and I guess most of us in the room do actually love his letters, uh, you will have noticed something rather interesting about them. Uh, He makes fairly regular reference to himself, as people do in letters, sharing information, passing on news, greeting friends, but he very rarely uh, takes the curtain aside from the depths of his own soul and experience and talks to uh, the churches or the individuals to whom he is writing about his own past experience, an occasional passing reference to make a point. But it's very rare for him to pause and at considerable length focus on himself. He does it basically only three or four times. And on each occasion, he does it because he can smell trouble. And this is a rule, this is a principle. If Paul pauses and says, let me now talk about myself, it's a sure sign that he has, he has reached a kind of emotional pitch of concern where he wants to warn his fellow Christians or appeal to them because he sees trouble. He does this in his early letter to the Galatians because he sees trouble has already come. He does it also to the Corinthians because he sees that his relationship with them has been fractured by a group of people he calls super apostles, and he has to appeal to them out of the experience that they have shared with him. He has been their spiritual father, and they are in danger of leaving the home and abandoning him and deserting the gospel. And he does it also here in Philippians chapter 3, and it's here in some ways that it's most surprising. Uh, There's not any trouble in the church at Philippi, is there? Really? Not big-time trouble. Uh, We've already noted on one or two occasions that there are a couple of women in the congregation who don't see eye to eye, and and we'll see Paul is concerned that someone will come alongside them and help them. But this this is a congregation he describes as his joy and his crown. These aren't like the, like the difficult Corinthians or the feisty Galatians. Uh, these are his friends. And yet, he smells trouble. And the trouble he smells is trouble that, in a sense, has dogged his own steps and pursued him into the churches that by God's grace he was able to plant again and again. Uh, The trouble of uh, these people he describes in verse 2 as dogs 
and as mutilators of the flesh. He's, he's playing on words, really. He's, he's turning language round on these people, because these are people with a Jewish background, very possibly Jewish people who had made Christian professions, but who are insisting that if you're going to be a Christian, then you've got to conform to the law of Moses. And that usually means two things. Two ways you should be marked as a Christian. One is you need to be circumcised. And this is why Paul refers to them in this almost violent language. Paul, interestingly, had had Timothy circumcised just before this particular missionary journey began. So, he understood the place that circumcision had among the Jewish people. But what he's resisting here, the reason he uses this violent language, you are mutilators of the flesh. You're not servants of Christ, you're mutilators of the flesh was because they were insisting on circumcision for Gentile believers who were never under the ceremonial law and were free from circumcision. And so, he describes them. You've got to see them in their true colors, he says. Yes, he says, they are dogs. And of course, this is simply picking up the language that was was used by Jewish people of Gentiles. Do you remember that startling occasion when Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman, should, should, should the dogs share of what belongs to the master's table? You see, He's, he's testing her. And you remember her, her brilliant spirit illumined reply, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And she's saying, I know, I'm a Gentile dog. That's how I'm viewed in this country among these people. But I believe that God has a sufficiency of grace to feed the dogs. And Paul turns this round. Um, Paul, who probably since childhood had thought about Gentiles as dogs, is now deeply concerned that these, these mutilators of the flesh will mutilate the Philippians' faith. And as they have dogged his heels, they will come barking and whining into the Philippian church and destroy the beauty of the fellowship, destroy the, the tranquility of the joy that they had experienced. And at least in terms of the use of language you find in Paul, he is at his most violent when he's dealing with false teaching. And in that respect, he is 180 degrees removed from the contemporary church, isn't he? It is evident in the Western church that what the Western church fears most of all is being out of step with contemporary society, being politically incorrect. What it seems to fear most of all is that it should suffer and be persecuted lest the voice of the church be silenced 
and the church be destroyed. That was never a concern for the Apostle Paul. Not for a moment did the Apostle Paul even imagine that persecution could destroy the church. But I say he was 180 degrees removed from the contemporary professing church, not only in that, but in this. He believed that false teaching always would destroy the church, always would destroy the church. And this is why he is not only so passionate in the way in which he describes these false teachers who are dogging his steps, but why he, he uh, untypically rips open his own life. And he says, I know about these people. You need to understand that for all their rigor, for all their forum, for all their zeal, you need to understand that they are trusting in the flesh. And just as you believed me when I came with the message of the gospel, just as you, some of you may remember how when I spoke first of all at the riverside, the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she believed the message. Since you've believed me about the message of the gospel, believe me also about this, that trusting in the flesh is the sure way to the destruction of the church. And he says, I know, because it was when I was trusting in the flesh that I sought to destroy the church. And so, he, he opens up here in a way he, he isn't really anywhere else in the, in the letters, in a way not even in the Acts of the Apostles, where his conversion story is told on three occasions. I mean, it's so important, it's told on three separate occasions in considerable detail. But the interesting thing about those descriptions of his conversion is that they tell us virtually nothing about what was going on in his soul. And here he's really saying, let me, let me give you my own personal testimony to what happened to me and how it was from this very trusting in the flesh that by God's grace I was delivered. And let me try and, and help you to see the, the glorious transformation and liberation the gospel brought to me. And so, Philippians chapter 3, certainly the first half, is, is just Paul's story, no longer told from the outside as a description of events but his story told from the inside as the description of his experience. And I think he divides it into, th into three stages. You would, you would understand this. First of all, he tells us something about the story of his past, and then he tells us something about the story of his conversion, and then he tells us something about the story of his present experience. His past experience his conversion experience, his present experience. And it's, in a way, it's the story of every Christian, isn't it? There's a, there's a past experience. There's a, there's a conversion experience for many of us. And there's a present experience of what Jesus Christ means to us. So, what was his past experience? Well, he tells us that he made two fatal errors 
in the past, just like these dogs and mutilators of the flesh. His first was his confidence in his pedigree, his confidence in his pedigree, what he was by heredity. Look at what he says in in verse 4. He says, they they have confidence in the flesh. Well, I, I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he, he writes out his pedigree, circumcised on the eighth day. That is to say, from the very beginning of his life, conforming to the Jewish law of the people of Israel, and then in even, even greater detail, of the tribe of Benjamin. Perhaps he had been named Saul because he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which you remember had given Israel its first king, its first noble prince. And moreover, he says, I was brought up as a Hebrew, a Hebrew speaker of Hebrew-speaking parents. I need to understand that uh, the, the, the Jewish world was, was the Hellenistic world, that people spoke Greek. Uh, Jewish people spoke Greek. Uh, for that matter, everybody spoke Greek. The Romans spoke Greek. You know, Julius Caesar never would have said, et tu, Brute. He would have spoken Greek. There was a Greek world but not for Saul of Tarsus. For Saul of Tarsus, it was a pure world. And he had, this is what he's saying, if you want to compare pedigrees, you'll not top this one. Now, you know, there's a secular form of this, isn't it? The the school you went to, the side of town you were brought up in, your family name, uh, I've never forgotten the first time someone with a very strong American accent came up to me in the United States and said, I'm Scottish too. And I, I, um, I gave the instinctive response, oh, when did you come over? No, no, he said, no, no, it's my family, it's 1785. You see, that's a long memory to have, isn't it? I, I know a man who is a direct descendant of the great Jonathan Edwards broadly recognized as the greatest intellectual mind ever to appear on the landmass of the colonies. He was, of course, British. He lived before that uh, little difficulty we had. Uh, What fascinates me is he he never told me that. If If I were a direct descendant of the great Jonathan Edwards, you wouldn't be in my presence 10 minutes without me saying, oh, you know, you know this is what we're like, isn't it? Because none of us likes to be just average. And apparently, if you, if you do a poll asking the question, are you, a, are you a better or a worse than average car driver? Like 90% of people claim to be better than average car drivers. It doesn't work that way. 
Those of you who remember the first edition of Billy Graham's book, Peace with God, I think I'm right in remembering. It opens with this really great story about a man who goes to see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist says, what's your problem? He says, I've got an inferiority complex. And the psychiatrist says, well, let's talk together. You know, billing the hour. So after they've been talking about 45 minutes, he says, well, he says, there's good news, there's bad news. There's really good news. You, you don't have an inferiority complex. Man relaxes. Well, what's the problem? He says, the problem is you're just actually inferior. <laughs> well, you, you wouldn't go to a psychiatrist who told you that, would you? Why? Because by nature, you don't think you're inferior. Because you have, you have the pedigree. Um, and this is what Paul is saying. And he's not just saying, I've got a pedigree. He's saying, I have an impe impeccable pedigree. And the worst of it is, the worst of all pedigrees are the religious ones. The absolute worst of all pedigrees are the religious ones. And among the worst are the Presbyterian ones. Isn't that the truth? When, you've, when you have lived, you know, if you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s, and you have lived through the era in which the, the church has, has, uh, has, has been almost destroyed numerically, and you ask yourself, how many people have you known in the story of your life who have been put off church by people who have had Presbyterian pedigrees? but no grace. The stories are, they're beyond count. And so, Paul wants to insist that there, there's, no, there's no pedigree can compare to my pedigree. And I realize the extent to which if I was coming before God and saying to God, don't you know my pedigree? I began to realize that it was utterly insignificant. It was privilege, but privilege that doesn't bow us down before the Lord and make us seek His grace and mercy. We've turned into pedigree. And that was true for Saul of Tarsus, especially because he was able to add performance to his pedigree. He came to a stage in life, as, as people who are brought up with a religious pedigree all do, where he had to make a choice. And it's fascinating this. I mean, it's still true today in the church, isn't it, that, that you, you come to a point where you've got to make a choice of, so what kind of Christianity is it where? And Paul made his choice. The choice he made was, I'm going for by far the most difficult, by far the most arduous, by far the most demanding form of Judaism. And so he adds, not only what I received from my parents, but he says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. That is, he personally chose the strictest way. When you went to Jerusalem to study, as Saul of Tarsus went to Jerusalem to study, there was a variety of, of Jewish theological schools you could go to. You could go to the liberal one, 
ones. Or you could go to the really tight, strict ones. And he had gone to the really tight, strict one. He was indeed a, a Pharisee, he says. And then, as though to say, I outstripped all of my contemporaries. You want to know about zeal? I mean, there's strictness and then there's zeal. He says, here's my zeal. I persecuted the church. Now, it's interesting. We know who Saul of Tarsus's professor was, the man called Gamaliel. Gamaliel didn't persecute the church. We know that from the Acts of the Apostles, don't we? Gamaliel's line was, if this is of God, then it will stand. If it's not of God, then it won't stand. Now, you can make of that what you want, but Saul of Tarsus was more zealous than this famous professor he'd gone to study under. And uh, if you want to talk about keeping the law as far as keeping the law was concerned from an outward point of view, he says, I was faultless. He doesn't mean there that he was sinless, incidentally. You know, no Jew would have claimed that he or she was sinless. But yes, faultless. The way most people think of themselves. I mean, most people don't think of themselves as sinners, do they? I mean, they know they're not perfect, but they don't really have faults that would be sinful. I remember a minister telling me how he had a, a, a phone call from an anxious woman, think she was a medical doctor, in some distress. She, she needed to speak to him. They, they met in a hotel. Nowadays, that wouldn't be a wise thing to do if you're a minister, but they met in a hotel for coffee, and she, she talked about the, the, the situation. Do you know what he said? He said, have you ever asked for forgiveness? She stormed out of the hotel in bitter anger. She had a problem. Things were going wrong. But the idea that what she needed was forgiveness, that's the same kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, the language of forgiveness is thrown around today, but what do you, you forgive yourself, don't you? That's one of the most nonsensical ideas that humanity has ever invented, that you can forgive yourself. Nobody who forgives themselves can ever believe they're really forgiven. It doesn't work that way. But that's fine. We all believe in forgiveness. Except if we have come to the one who alone really can forgive us. The place we don't want to be brought to is where David was eventually brought when he said, against you, you only have I sinned, which is the reason why you only can forgive. My friends, you don't sin against other men and women. You may harm them. You may destroy them. Sin in its very nature, is something you do against God, and therefore only He can forgive. And this was, this was where Saul was, his past experience. He was, he was just like the rich young ruler in the Gospels. In fact, I mean, I remember when I was a very young, a teenager, 
there was a kind of whole uh, theology of Saul of Tarsus that actually was the rich young ruler who, when Jesus said to this man, what must I do to have eternal life? He said, well, go and keep the commandments. And he said, well, I've kept the commandments from my youth. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't give him a kick and say, don't be so absolutely stupid. Jesus apparently was drawn out with affection to this young man, the quality of this young man. But you see, he was spiritually blind. And Jesus probing him began to break him, but didn't bend him. And instead of coming to Jesus in the sorrow of his sin, he left Jesus in sorrow because he had great riches and they were stuck to him and he to them like superglue. And he wasn't going to come and follow Jesus. And in a way, it's not surprising that people thought, that's so like Saul of Tarsus. So much achievement but no eternal life. And then something happened. And the question is, how then was he brought to Christ? And it's this story that he now tells us, and I want us to pause on it. He said, what happened was that everything I counted as profit, I realized was loss and that I needed to come to discover what he calls in verse 8, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake all of this stuff, my pedigree and my performance had to fall out of my hand in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Let me, if I may, just take a moment or two to talk about this uh, this evening. Uh, there's a background to this that you don't need to know about. It's inherently interesting in itself, so let me not explain the background. But just, just talk about what did happen to Saul of Tarsus? Well, he was converted on the Damascus Road. Simple. Well, not so simple. Because here he says, as far as I was concerned as to legalistic righteousness, and actually the word legalistic isn't in the text here. That's been put in by translators who think people will misunderstand it unless you stick the word legalistic. He doesn't say legalistic righteousness. He just says righteousness. As far as righteousness was concerned, I had no problems. So, how does he move from that? I can understand him being flattened on the Damascus road and saying, Lord, who are you? And Jesus saying, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. What happened to Saul of Tarsus that moves him from trusting in his own righteousness to realizing that his own righteousness is, as we heard the other Sunday morning, is filthy rags in God's sight? The Acts of the Apostles gives you no information, apparently, about that. It doesn't say to you, for example, in any of the three tellings of the narrative, I, I felt myself to be a great sinner in need of a Savior, and I cast myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. It doesn't tell you any of that. 
But here we are, we are kind of faced with the question, what happens to Saul of Tarsus that he realizes all this pedigree means nothing, all this performance needs nothing, that he is a sinner in need of a Savior and comes to faith in Christ. And this is especially true since he, he tells us here, and he tells us the same thing in Galatians chapter 1, that uh, none of his contemporaries could hold a candle to him in terms of spiritual zeal and righteousness and accomplishment. But Luke does give us a clue, doesn't he, in the Acts of the Apostles? Um, working backwards, what, what precedes Saul's Damascus Road conversion? What, what immediately precedes it? It's Stephen's martyrdom, isn't it? I mean, what a moment. There is Stephen lying. Lord, have mercy on them. And there's Saul of Tarsus. And, and Luke says he, he's, he was looking after the jackets. Isn't that strange? He, he, was, he, was, he was looking after the jackets. I think that means he was the foreman of the business. Why is he not stoning Stephen? It may well have been because he was the ringleader of the stoning. But what happened immediately before that? Well, there is a statement in the fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles that seems to me, I beg your pardon, the sixth chapter, that seems to me to be almost gratuitous apart from one thing. Listen to the statement. It's in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen's almost certainly a, a pretty much a contemporary of Saul of Tarsus. They're in Jerusalem at the same time. They're young men at the same time. They both have Hellenistic backgrounds. Stephen is not a Hebrew name any more than Saul is a Hebrew name. Okay? Just hold that in place. So, he's full of God's grace and power. He's been converted to Christ. He does great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. And then opposition arose, however. Now, this, this, is, the, this is the verse. Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews. Now, What's, what's the synagogue of the freedmen made up of? Now, now why did you come to… This, this will help you understand this. Why have you come to St. Peter's? Answer, because you're Irish. This is where the Irish come. Is there a Chinese church in Dundee? Why, why do people go to the Chinese church? Because they're Chinese. Why do people go to the Scotskirk in Rotterdam or Paris or wherever? Because they're Scottish. This is just a sociological phenomenon. So, if you're from outside of Jerusalem, what synagogue do you go to? It depends where you come from. Now, listen to this. Where's the opposition coming from? From members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria 
as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, these men began to argue with Stephen. Now, what's all this stuff about? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm saying this verse is important. But, you know, my guess is most people who read the Acts of the Apostles through several times wouldn't even remember that verse was there. That verse is like, you know, verse 7 of Matthew chapter 1, a kind of bundle of names that mean nothing and therefore aren't very significant. This is hugely significant. It like kind of stands out. It's as though Luke is saying, don't you see why I'm going into these apparently stupid details? Well, why is he? Because this is the synagogue at Saul of Tarsus. 99% probability belonged to this synagogue because he was from Cilicia. And Paul's dad, last words to him, make sure you go to the synagogue of the freedmen because some of our relatives went there. Some of the people from Tarsus and Cilicia and other parts around here, they'll welcome you. So you begin to get the picture. Here's this young man who has outstripped all of his contemporaries, absolutely outstrips all of his contemporaries, until he meets Stephen, and Stephen's full of grace and the Holy Spirit and power. And there are all these theologically educated young men and older men and the rabbis and the, and the theologians and all arguing with him and he knows his Bible better than they do. And there's a grace about him, and they can't do him down. And that's, that's how it happens, isn't it? That's how it happened to some of us. We saw somebody that we, we had to, we, had, we either had to say, I want what he wants, or we had to get rid of what he had. Now, we didn't stone them, we demeaned them or avoided them. The kind of thing we do. I think this is the reason why in Romans 7, when Paul tells us what happened to him, he says, the law came, sin revived, and I died. And then he says, and let me tell you which particular commandment really ate me up. Do you know what it was? It's in Romans chapter 7. Which, which commandment would eat you up? I mean, if you, were to use a, if you were to use a commandment to say, I'm going to use that commandment to try and get inside that person I know who's a student or who works with me, really to get them in what I think is their most obvious sin and show them how alienated from God they really are, what would you have chosen with Saul of Tarsus? God chose thou shalt not covet. That's what, that's what get inside him. Now, why? Because he, he's saying here, and he says in Galatians, I didn't have any need to cover anything from anybody. I was numero uno in the little religious world in which I lived. I think it was the Tenth Commandment because Stephen appeared on the scene full of the Holy Spirit and grace, a master of the Word of God, and unbeatable in these arguments. 
and for the first time in his life, in terms of peer groups, I think Saul of Tarsus met somebody he knew had something he needed and didn't have. And as I say, when you're faced with that, however demurely you may do it, or how violently you may do it, you've got to join up or destroy. And Saul of Tarsus chose to destroy. And it was when he was kicking against the pricks. Remember? That's what Jesus said to him. It's really hard, isn't it? It's, it's kind of almost, it's almost like a light moment in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus that Jesus says, it's been really hard, hasn't it? I mean, when the man is flat on his face in front of Jesus, I think there's something kind of, there's something very sweet about that. Oh, Saul, it's been hard, hasn't it? You've faced the great crisis of your life. And friend, you've lost. And you're down there in the dust. And unless I'm hearing things up here in heaven, you've just said, who are you, Curios? I see what God did through Stephen and what God did from heaven. That's the way, that's often the way, isn't it? It's, it's not just that other person. That other person, no matter how marvelous their Christian life, that other person has no power to bring me to faith in Christ. God needs to come down from heaven in the power of His Holy Spirit. And in that beautiful conjunction, uh, Saul of Tarsus is brought to a living faith. And in that experience, so it probably wasn't just a momentary thing, but a, an elongated reality. In that experience, he made a double exchange. He exchanged his own flimsy righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, no longer having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he exchanged his own ambitions for Christ's ambition for him. And he describes it, that new ambition. He says, I want, to, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and share the fellowship of His sufferings and be made like Him in His death and attain to the resurrection. What's he saying? He's saying, now I… You know, I saw something, now put it this way, I saw something in Stephen that I simultaneously both hated and wanted. And now I want everything that Stephen had because I know that it wasn't a what that he had. It was a whom. I want to know Christ and I want to be like Christ. So what does that mean for Paul as he's writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3? Well, he, he tells his his past story, and he tells uh, a little indication of his conversion story, and then he moves on to his present story, and his, his present story is this, that now, now his life is marked by a single focus. 
He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider things rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ. And he couldn't make it any plainer, could he? That what has now happened to him is that all this stuff that so filled his horizon, that filled his hands, that caused his heart to beat with a a singular passion, now it's all been replaced by Jesus Christ. This one thing I do, he says, forsaking what lies behind in verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So, his life's marked by a single focus. I mean, actually, he's doing many things, and in in some places, he gives us these great lists of the things that he's involved in, but he's really focused on one, Christ, Christ with him, Christ dwelling within him, Christ walking beside him, Christ being the goal in everything he does, whatever it is he does, whether it's preaching to the fading scholarship of Athens at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, or or sitting making tents in order to earn a living to finance his gospel ministry. He's he's doing everything for, for Jesus' sake. And he's a transformed man marked by a single focus. And that single focus gives him an entirely new perspective on everything. And that's, that's, you know, that's probably physically true, isn't it? When you, when you change your focus, it gives you a different perspective on everything. When you, when you change the place at which you're standing and then look at everything, then everything begins to look different. And you see how this new perspective influenced him. Everything he counted as gain, he now describes as loss. He wouldn't have been able to understand that before. Everything Stephen counted gain, Saul would have counted loss. But now he counts it loss too, and he he couldn't have understood that. Non-Christians actually can't understand it. Some of you who follow the 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 great uh, heroes of the golfing world. Remember Bernhard Langer, Christian man, when he won the Masters, saying this was a a great thing for him, but couldn't compare to the wonder of faith in Jesus Christ. You remember what, uh, I think it was Greg Norman, the great Australian golfer, for many, many months, the number one golfer in the world, enormously successful. Do you know what he said about that? He didn't say about it, I hate Bernard Langer. I don't like 
people saying that kind of thing, what he said was this. He said, I, I just don't understand that. I cannot understand how someone could say that after winning the Masters. Well, here's the answer. The new focus brings a new perspective. And uh, that super glue that nothing else could dissolve from our fingers, the gospel dissolves and we're able to take hold of Jesus Christ and He begins to mean everything to us. You know, the one occasion I would have loved to have been uh, alive during David Livingston's life um, was when he was standing before the young graduates of the University of Glasgow, when Glasgow University had the decency which universities in Scotland might not have today, uh, of honoring him. And he stood there with his limp arm. I mean, you've all seen the picture of the lion, David Livingston, the arm limp, telling these students he was going back to Africa because Jesus Christ had promised him that he would be with him wherever he went to the end of the age. And that was the promise of a gentleman. And he had never failed him yet. What a moment. What a, what a thing to see a life just focused on Jesus Christ and being an explorer. So you can be a Christian explorer. And you don't need to leave your science lab to do that. Other kinds of lions may attack you. And happen wherever you are in your studies and a housewife, homemaker, everything. Focus on Jesus Christ. It transforms the whole of our lives. Well, my friends, where are we tonight? Is this, is this mumbo-jumbo to you? Um, you know, I believe it, but do you believe it? Is this, is this your story? Still, still perhaps clinging on to the, the ruins of uh, your pedigree? Or trusting in Jesus Christ and realizing that everything you counted gain is, is actually comparatively speaking. It, much of it is still good and wonderful, but compared to Jesus, it, it, it just seems like dross now that you are trusting in. And knowing, and of course, this is his whole point, knowing that this is the way that leads to joy and warning the Philippian Christians against any teaching that they might hear that would divert their focus from a single eye upon the Lord Jesus and their hearts full of His grace. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the word of the gospel that You've given to us for for the different ways in which it comes to us, it never ceases to amaze us, that it comes to us in songs and narratives, comes to us in, in poetry, it comes to us in, in proverbs, it comes to us in
in specific teaching. It comes to us in great doctrines, and, and sometimes it comes to us in, in personal testimony like this. And no matter how different Saul of Tarsus may have been from us, and so far removed from us in history and geography, we're so grateful to you that one of the reasons we believe this gospel is because what happened to him, albeit with different attendant circumstances, has also happened to us. And we're able to say with him, to me, to live is Christ. Lord, make this true for us, and not only in the safety of the fellowship we enjoy here tonight and the privilege of worship, but all the way through this week that opens up before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.